Hello, and welcome to The Appetite. I'm your host, Carter Umhow, a therapist, artist, and writer. If you haven't listened before, The Appetite is a podcast brought to you by the co-founders of Opal Food and Body Wisdom, an eating disorder treatment program in Seattle. The Appetite draws from both clinical work with eating disorders and personal vulnerability to speak to ever-relatable questions around how to have relationships of both nuance and freedom with food, body image, movement, and with oneself. On the last episode of the podcast, I shared some of my own poetry, and then Kara and Lexi joined me for a conversation around my thoughts on what it is about naming the specific through the creative process that is so deeply therapeutic, and how a seeking metaphor can help us better understand the experience of our lives. Today, Opal co-founder Julie Church and I continue to explore the intersection of metaphor and healing, but this time with Dr. Anita Johnston. Dr. Johnston is well-known and respected throughout the eating disorder community for her soulful approach to exploring a person's relationship with food through myth, metaphor, and storytelling. Dr. Anita Johnston is a psychologist, certified eating disorder specialist, and author of Eating in the Light of the Moon, which has been published in six languages and uses stories and myth about the sacred feminine as a way to highlight a new way of thinking about our relationship with food. She is the co-creator of the Light of the Moon Cafe, which offers online self-study courses and an interactive women's support circle and course. She has been working in the field of eating difficulties for over 35 years and is currently the clinical director of Ipono Hawaii, which has a residential program on Maui and an outpatient eating disorder program in Honolulu and the Big Island of Hawaii. Today, she joins us with her unique perspective on the complex issues that underlie struggles with eating, weight, and body image. Okay, so we'll just jump in. Um, and I've heard a couple of your interviews already, Anita, so I'm excited to uh-huh. get to talk to you with some slightly different questions, maybe. But okay, um, so. Just right off the bat, who were some of the greatest influences on your sense of self and on your relationship with your food, with food and your body? Well, I I think in terms of my sense of self, it's my grandmother, uh, who uh, her name is Agita, and that happens to be my middle name, and she's a indigenous to Guam, so that that's the Chamorro people, which is where I grew up, and. Um, from a very early age, she was somebody that I looked up to because she would say to me things like, Anita, we are not on this planet just to take up space. Mm. But more than her saying that, she demonstrated it. So before I was born, uh, the island was occupied during World War II for three years by uh, the Japanese, and it was a very torturous occupation, and she led the underground resistance movement, Mm -hmm. and I grew up hearing all these stories of her bravery, and Mm. they had suspected her uh, of hiding uh, the one American uh, left on the island, Uh, and and she was. (laughs) was (laughs) He had a radio, he had, and was getting the real news, so the people were being told that the island was uh, that California had been invaded and they were being told all these things where she was getting the real news. And Mm. so she kept him hidden in the jungle. And then she had a soap factory where she would take the news and wrap it up, uh, put it in the paper that the soap was being wrapped in. And that's how she would disseminate it. And and she did many things like that. And Mm. they suspected 
that she was hiding this man and tortured her, but she never she never revealed. Mm-hmm. So I, I grew up with these stories, and then she started the first high school on the island and the first Girl Scouts and the first Red Cross. And, and if ever there was a need that she saw needed to be fulfilled, her response was, well, then let's do it. Mm. And so I just thought that was normal. Yeah, that's quite <laughs> <Right>? remarkable <laughs> to be looking um, up to someone and, like and, that. And and my mother was the same way and my aunties. And so I had this very strong uh, influence of women uh, and also multicultural because I had several mothers that were mm. Chamorro or Filipina or my, my own mother was American. And so um, I think that really had a, a just, like I say, I didn't realize that there was any other way to be. Mm. So how that affected me down the road many, many years later uh, when I was a psychologist working in Hawaii and I was supervising an intern who was studying the incidence of eating disorders in Hawaii. And we started to realize there was a big problem and that there should be a center for this. And there wasn't a center. There was no place for people to get help. And it didn't take too long to go, well, then I guess we have to do it, mm-hmm, right? right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I had always been interested in women's issues uh, and cultural issues. And when I took a look at what was going on with uh, all these females at the time, it was females struggling with eating and body image and all of that. I I became fascinated and really curious to find out what's the driving force behind all of this. Um, and and people have asked me. They've said, "Well, did you have an eating disorder?" And the truth is, I should have. Mm. Uh, I, I have the right personality for it. Mm. And so I've always been curious, well, why Why didn't I get an eating disorder? And interesting, I was speaking with a girlfriend of mine, and we grew up together. and We happened to be together uh, for dinner. And I said, you know, I, I'm really curious about this because I think what really saved me from getting an eating disorder is that nobody was dieting. When I was growing up, I said, my mom wasn't dieting. And I asked her, I said, did your mother diet? She goes, no, nobody was dieting then. Mm. So I, I think that's one thing that's made all the difference for me. Uh, uh, I, it was just before, and Guam was always behind the times a little bit. So it's just before all the, the dieting uh, mentality and that kind of madness uh, started to uh, infuse the culture. What a savior in terms of your own sense of self to be able to kind of witness women around you and family members Mm -hmm. actually getting to invest and care about things other than just slimming their body. (laughs) I I think so. I think that really did. Um, Of course, back then, I bemoaned the fact that I lived in an isolated part of the world (laughs) that was behind everybody else, and I couldn't wait to get across that ocean. But, you know, of (laughs) course, now I'm older, and I can look back, and I can go, oh, okay, I see how that really protected me. Um, but it, not for long, because I have uh, sisters, you know, younger, significantly younger than me, and they ended up struggling. So mm-hmm. I was just a little ahead of that whole movement, I think. Yeah. So once you once you got this perspective, do you feel like you were able to look back on your upbringing in Guam and on your grandmother and your mother and, and kind of see what what that kind of influence of the matrilineal society had on mm-hmm. on you and mm-hmm. your sense of what what a person 
thought about or how they should be or thinking about themselves and their body? Yeah, well, I did my doctoral dissertation on ethnic identity of Chamorro women. So I started already looking at that and and I knew, you know, that there there was a matrilineal basis to the Chamorro culture. But then we had 200 years of Spanish rule where then the, the more patriarchal influence came into play. But even then, the women still kept their names, uh, at least as their middle name. But then the American, when, we, when the Americans um, took over the island as a result of the Spanish-American War, there was the, and it was a, more of a military, you know, which is really patriarchal orientation. Right. So, but yet, the women were the keepers of the culture and the language. And I think for a while, uh, that sustained them in some ways. And um, so I was always curious about that. And then as I started looking at what was happening to women and girls in, in currently, and, and when I say currently, I'm talking, this is back in the early 80s. So, so when I first started working with uh, eating issues, um, and back then, anorexia was just becoming a household uh, word with the experience with Karen Carpenter. Bulimia nervosa had just been diagnosed. And, of course, binge eating disorder wasn't even on the horizon at that time. Uh, the problems and the struggle was there, but it wasn't even being recognized. Mm-hmm. So, and I was uh, in Hawaii, and so in some ways, again, I can see where my isolation helped me because it, it allowed me to just get really, really curious. I was working with women of all ethnicities, all sizes, all shapes. Um, all different kinds of backgrounds, some who had had uh, severe trauma, some no trauma to speak of, loving intact families. And so it allowed me the space because there was no field, you see, at the time. So it allowed me the space to just get really curious to see, you know, what is going on here? Why uh, why was it uh, girls and women? Because in those days, there, there weren't any guys showing up reporting to struggle with eating and food and body image. Um, why was it these particular girls and women, and why was the struggle around eating food and body? And uh, I just was able to just get really, really curious to see what I could find out rather than making too many assumptions. I got to listen to their stories um, because uh, I grew up in a storytelling tradition. That's how a lot of information was taught to me. It's certainly my morals mm-hmm. were taught in that way. <laughs> But as a psychologist, I was a trained story listener. So I thought, well, why don't I just listen and see if I can figure this out? Um, mm. and, and, and I'm really grateful for that because yeah. it gave me an opportunity to really look at it in a different light. That's wonderful. So you you are so, I think, well-known within this world, especially because of the use of, of story and, and metaphor. Um, when you started listening to these women's stories, were you listening in a particular way, um, given your mm-hmm. kind of ear for metaphor? I think so. I think uh, one of the things I, I found is that I would zoom way out rather than hone in on the details. And not that the details weren't important, because I've soon discovered they're really important, because they inform me as to what the deeper meaning is and, and, and what those connections are. So I think, it, I, you know, it's sort of if you use a metaphor of, 
uh, a camera where you like you zoom in and then you zoom out and you're trying to you're trying to get your focus here, but you have to go, keep going back and forth, back and forth from the the microcosm to the macrocosm and 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 to really get the whole picture mm-hmm. uh, because that's what I was going for because I was seeing a great deal of diversity. So I'm going okay, but what's the common denominator? How 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 do we get to that? And so that's what I would start listening to with um with my inner ear as well as my outer ear. So I started listening more metaphorically as well as literally. And and honestly, uh, to this day, what that has allowed me to do is, first of all, I don't even believe in eating disorders any longer. And, How do and, you mean? And, uh, <laughs> yeah, right. It sounds like blasphemy. Right? Like, <laughs> no. like, you've, been, you've been in the field for 30 years and now? And, and, and what, I, what I mean by that is that, of course, people struggle with eating disorders and the suffering is great and the consequences can be very severe. But what I started to see is that there are certain patterns that that emerge and these patterns, the good news is, is if you can get to the, how the pattern that's going on with the eating is reflected in somebody else's life, then as you heal the, the, the pattern with the eating, you're also bringing healing to other areas of their life. And as you heal other areas of their life, it brings healing to the pattern with eating. So, for example, I, uh, what I see now is that if somebody is um, restricting their food, for example, it's not just food they're restricting, right? right? They're restricting new experiences, and they may be restricting their emotional expression, or they may um, be restricting relationships, or 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 if they uh, make a mistake, they put themselves on restriction. And so what you start to see is a pattern of restriction popping up all over the place. Mm-hmm. And and if somebody is struggling with uh, yo-yo dieting or binge purge behavior, what you'll see is if you look, if you zoom in and zoom out and zoom in and zoom out, you start to see a pattern of taking in more than they can handle too quickly and then feeling like they got to get rid of it. So it's not just with food, but it might be um, with classes. They'll, t- they'll sign up for a ton of classes and then get overwhelmed and drop out of school. Or it might be in relationships where they meet somebody who madly, madly in love and, and plunge right in. And then um, when they notice something they don't, they don't like, they go, okay, I'm out of here. I can't handle this. Or, or maybe with projects, they'll take on a ton of projects and then never be able to finish any of them because they're too overwhelmed. Yep. And so you see that pattern of taking in too much too quickly and then not being able to, to uh, stay with it or not being able to literally and figuratively digest all of what they're taking in from life. Mm-hmm. And if somebody is struggling with binge eating or compulsive eating uh what you'll see is you're going to see a theme of scarcity everywhere. It's not that there's, it's not just there's not enough food, but there's not enough money. There's not enough time. There's not enough attention. Uh, there's not enough affection in their lives. So everywhere you'll see this pattern of scarcity or they're not enough. So you start looking at, okay, what's happening with somebody and life? Where is it that life is too much? And where is it that it's not enough? And then, then this can just take you in a lot of different directions. And you're dealing with a whole constellation of, of their experience of life itself. And so that's what I mean by they're really more like life disorders or patterns right. that um, 
uh, have become a little too entrenched, and now they need to extricate themselves. And, and, and for me, then that shows me well, what the skill set is that they need to learn, the life skill, whether it's a matter of creating boundaries or so that they can be more receptive to things, but it not be too much mm-hmm. or, or setting limits. If, if it's, if it's too much that's coming at them, um, so that they don't have to create walls, but they can let in what works for them. Um, so you start, you start to see, Oh, okay. What is the skill that's going to allow them to navigate differently in life as well as with their eating behaviors or thoughts. So that's what I meant. (laughs) I love that. I love that. It makes me get so excited to hear all these different zooming in and zooming out patterns that can happen when you're, when you're thinking therapeutically. Um, Mm -hmm. I remember reading in graduate school, something about how, I think it was a book called female perversions actually, but um, Hmm. they were talking about how as women, oftentimes, especially in this society, the focus is so much on the body that mm-hmm. it becomes maybe the canvas that other people are projecting mm-hmm. so much onto, mm-hmm. but it also becomes mm-hmm. our only canvas in which to communicate. Right. Um, right. And so those tools, translating right. them from just your interactions with food or just your interactions with your body into mm-hmm. something mm-hmm. else, into those mm-hmm. life skills that you're talking about, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. feel like that big step when there is too much emphasis mm-hmm. initially mm-hmm. on the body. Yeah, because what happens is, you know, we live metaphorically, mm-hmm. actually. So what happens is we do use our bodies as a canvas, and we also, as a form of communication, just like food and eating becomes a form of communication about things that we can't quite put into words. Mm-hmm. And and that's why I believe that the one, the most critical skill that a person needs in order to recover from any kind of eating difficulty um, is assertive communication, which is the capacity to identify, accept, and express your emotions, and then put them into words and communicate them in a way in which honors your experience and the experience of the other person. Uh, because when you can do that, you pretty much put the eating disorder or the the, the uh, disordered eating or the eating difficulties, wherever you're at on that spectrum, you're putting it out of a job. Mm-hmm. And so that's just sort of an essential thing. And of course, I believe that total, complete recovery is absolutely, totally possible once you develop these these life skills. Mm-hmm. I love that. No, I, I am connecting in this whole conversation, I'm connecting a lot to my mothering, like my own Mm. sense of being a mom and Mm -hmm. thinking about our listeners that may be moms or are thinking about their own moms or the, (laughs) yeah, who around them have influenced them. And I, Mm -hmm. this, this is maybe a specific question, but I, I hear both in the, like the, the gift of what metaphor and storytelling can be in relationship. So if it's a therapeutic Mm -hmm. relationship, or maybe it's also just your family relationships or your Mm -hmm. own friendships, Mm -hmm. I just think of that as a gift. But then also like you're saying that then it kind of moves to say those metaphors can help us see what are the things that we want to learn. And I, I wonder about as a mom, like when you think about the prevention aspect of these issues, right? If it's life issues, life disorders, eating Mm -hmm. disorders, Mm -hmm. however you want to phrase it, like Mm -hmm. what, 
what if you had, if you, yeah, what's, what's your, what, what are your nuggets of wisdom for the, the parents, you know, is it to build their, their storytelling and their metaphor skills or like, what are the life skills that you would hope that they could help their kids have? Yeah. yeah, What, what bubbles up for you? (laughs) All right. Well, the first thing I want to say, you know, having, you know, raised two daughters is that it's a humbling experience. Mm -hmm. Um, So, so, I don't think any one of us has the capacity to totally prevent someone from getting an eating disorder, right? right? We do the best we can with what resources we have. And I think it's really mm. important to understand that there's a lot that you can do. And, and, I, and I, going back to the assertiveness, I think um, helping your children learn how to communicate their feelings directly and, and identify them. And I remember being so excited one time when I got up in the morning and my kids had already gone off to school, they were, uh, and, and my daughter had left a note for me and it was on the counter and it said, mommy, when you said you would pr- sign my permission slip and you didn't, I felt really mad because you promised and you broke your oh, promise. Mm. <laughs> and my reaction was, oh my God, she used the assertive formula. <laughs> <laughs> Very direct. That That's great. Right? Wonderful. Because that's, you know, when you work metaphorically, people, it's not just they, they might restrict their feelings and therefore restrict their food, or or they might stuff their feelings and stuff, use food to stuff. And so it's like, I think if you can really, like I, I said, put the eating sort of out of a job, don't, don't give it much to do. Um, uh, that's the best thing you can do with kids. The other thing is um, teach them proprioceptive awareness. Teach them how to uh, identify their um, hunger and satiety signals. Mm. And that's really, really valuable uh, rather than having them be a member of the Clean Plate Club or telling about those poor children in China or Bangladesh Mm -hmm. or wherever. Mm -hmm. uh, And that's why they have to eat everything on their plate. You know, it's Mm -hmm. like, how does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So really teaching them uh, to uh, eat to appetite. And um, I, I think that's really important because... Well, the way I see it with eating difficulties, what happens, and here's a metaphor for you that, that I work with a lot, is, um, and with metaphors you use your imagination. So if you can imagine two tanks, tank A and tank B. Tank A is the tank you fill when you need physical nourishment. You fill it with food. Tank B is the tank you fill when you need emotional or spiritual nourishment. And you fill it with things like attention, affection, appreciation, acknowledgement, meditation, prayer, and so on. But in our culture, we're not taught this. And so we think there's just one tank. And before we know it, tank A is full and overflowing, but we're still hungry. (laughs) Or we don't even want to get close to tank A because it seems like the bottomless pit and it'll never end. And so one of the things we all need to learn to do, and it's useful to teach children to do this, is to tease the two tanks apart. And how do you do that? Well, you do it through proprioceptive or interoceptive awareness. So you find your hunger and satiety signals. And a lot of my work is helping people do that because we've been taught to disregard those signals. And so so I, you know, I might be working with somebody, and I remember this woman came running in, and she was waving a half-eaten candy bar in the air, and she goes, "I found it! I found it!" And I said, "Wow, what's that?" She goes, well, I found my fullness signal, mm. and and I was eating this candy bar, and I felt it, and so mm. I wrapped up the candy bar and put it back in my purse to eat again when I was still hungry. 
So, so it's this whole process of learning, you know, maybe whether it's taking two bites at a time and finding the physical sensation in your body that is telling you you're hungry or full. And, and, and I, I mean sensation because it's a physical experience, right? I feel like pizza is not a physical experience, but if you feel a contraction or an expansion or heaviness or lightness, or roughness, or smoothness, or hollowness, or density, then, then you know, that's information for you coming from your body. Mm-hmm. And that's what the body's for. It's right. It's there to communicate and let you know stuff. Mm-hmm. And so this is an important skill. And I, again, I think it's a good skill to teach our kids. Definitely. However, there's more to the story <laughs> than that, right? Uh, because what happens if you, let's say you found your hunger and satiety signals and you're reaching for the pizza and you check in, oh, not a hunger signal in sight. Mm. You still want to eat that pizza. Well, guess what? Now you've tumbled down Alice in Wonderland's rabbit hole and mm. landed smack dab in tank B. And in tank B, that's the world of metaphor. And in tank B, pizza is not pizza. Uh, food is not food. Mm-hmm. What is it? It's a concrete physical symbol of another kind of hunger that you're experiencing and you don't even know about. Mm-hmm. But the problem is, uh, because we live in an emotionally illiterate culture, we don't understand how to recognize that and, and, that, and that that hunger is coded, but it's coded in the language of metaphor. So you have to crack the code to find out what the other hungers are because we're not even taught that we have other hungers besides food, right? right. And, and so the way you, you crack the code is the first question you might ask yourself is, okay, what's the feeling I'm trying not to feel? You know, because we don't eat for emotional reasons. We eat because we don't want to feel our emotions, right? And so you might might do a scan of your day and see maybe you're annoyed at the person who cut you off on the freeway, or maybe <laughs> you're concerned about something your boss said, or a upcoming parent-teacher meeting, or what? where might there be a feeling that you don't want to feel? But I'm here to tell you that most of the time, if you ask yourself that question, the answer is going to be, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I feel fine. Everything's okay, because these are hidden. These are hidden, right? So... The good news is, though, the food itself will tell you. The food itself is coded, just like I talked about how these patterns are, 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 are coded. They have information. And, and so I'm going to share with you how you begin to crack the code. And, of course, we're all different. So we all um, have, have different experiences. But, but to begin with, there's certain categories that you look at. And so it's like sweet foods usually have to do with either feeling like you're not sweet enough or there's not enough sweetness in your life. And, and by the way, if any of your listeners, you don't have to scramble to write this down. Um, <laughs> you can just go to lightofthemooncafe.com forward slash opal and uh, get a PDF that has it all written, spelled out. So you can just kind Thank of you. listen along. So, so um, salty, crunchy foods typically are connected with frustration over unexpected anger or unexpressed frustration. Uh, warm foods, usually like soups and stews, are typically connected to a, a hunger for emotional warmth. Um, spicy foods are often related to um, either a fear of or a longing for excitement, stimulation, and change. And chocolate 
We know this from Valentine's Day, <laughs> sex and romance. And so once you understand, you can start to, you know, break this down. And so I had a client and, and she struggled with um, bulimia. And I said to her, I said, okay, if there were any food that you wished you could eat without there being any consequences whatsoever, you don't even have to worry about a thing, there would be no consequences, what would that food be? And she said, vanilla ice cream with strawberries on top. Mm-hmm. And when I said to her, I said, well, well I want you to imagine that I, I've never had vanilla ice cream with strawberries on top, and you're going to tell me what's so wonderful about it. And she said, well, it's sweet, it's smooth, and it's refreshing. And when we then zoomed the lens out and, and took a look at what was going on in her life, her boyfriend was accusing her of not being sweet enough. She had hit a rough patch with her parents that she was desperately wanting to smooth out. And she was in a dead-end job in need of a refreshing change. One food. Ah, six months of therapy, right? <laughs> 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 so that's how it works mm. and, it's, and it's kind of what happens is it's kind of fun because mm-hmm. you know recovery or trying to extricate yourself from eating difficulties sometimes it's really hard work and, and sometimes it's painful and frustrating but I'm here to say it's also fun when the lights go on you know when you go oh I got it I see this mm-hmm. I think, too, of like then what's that woman's relationship with the ice cream with um, strawberries on top moving forward? Like I think oh, mm-hmm. that's such a still, you know, it can be a clear place that she could have some learning from. And she might be able to have times that yeah. she eats it, you know, in her. Yeah. Without all of the attachment, I assume. I don't know. Just like because she well, might you, really just enjoy it, too. Yes. <laughs> so. Yes. But here's the thing. When you bring it into consciousness. Yes. Um, then things shift. So, so when it's conscious, you, she might be aware of all of this, but she's not going to have to have a whole gallon of ice cream to get it. Mm-hmm. You see what I'm saying? So she can enjoy the ice cream and go, oh, yeah, I know what this is about, mm-hmm. and then enjoy the ice cream in, mm-hmm. a, in a more conscious way. It's when it's unconscious that it drives you um, uh, in, in a way that you're not really even able to enjoy the ice cream. Mm-hmm. I think about that as, as sort of choosing to participate with the metaphor. And sometimes that means like really doing something that would be more in the life skills category. And sometimes it's, Mm -hmm. I I do need the richness of this food. I do want that. And I'm going to participate. I'm going to actively choose that today. Yeah. I'll give you an example from my own life because it's not like, oh, there's all those weird people with eating disorders and then there's (laughs) us. It's like, oh, it's not like this. We all do this to one degree or another. And so this was many years ago and I um, had a home office in in, uh, Hawaii in a little town. Um, This is when I was seeing people face to face. Now most of my work is is, um, through teleconferencing. But back then I had this home office and I um, had had a break between clients and all of a sudden I had this craving (laughs) interestingly enough it was for a vanilla cone dipped in chocolate Mm. and I had you know I check in do my proprioceptive awareness look for a hunger signal oh no not a hunger signal in sight but I wanted that vanilla ice cream (laughs) and then the voice begins vanilla ice cream vanilla cone (laughs) dipped in chocolate vanilla cone dipped in chocolate and so of course I asked myself okay what's the feeling I'm trying not to feel Vanilla cone, no answers were coming, right? So I did what I often tell my clients to do, which is go get the food, (laughs) but eat it 
consciously and deliberately because you're going to try to crack the code. So there was a little frozen yogurt place not far from my house. And I hopped in my car and I zipped over and I went rushing and I said, I need a vanilla cone dipped in chocolate. And of course, this is Hawaii. So the woman says, I'm sorry, ma'am, but it's the weather today and, and it won't stand. The vanilla won't stand oh. up. And before I started to freak out, she said, but I'll put it in a cup. And I'll pour the chocolate shell on top, and then I'll stick the cone in upside down. And I thought, perfect, because now I can take it on my lap. I was only a few minutes away, drive home, and eat it at my table consciously, deliberately, which is what I did, asking myself, what is it? What is it? What is it? <laughs> and I was like up to my ears in vanilla cone dipped in chocolate, and then it popped. And I went, oh, Dairy Queen. Now, <laughs> to understand what this meant to me when I was a little girl growing up on the island of Guam, um, every Sunday after church, um, my my dad would take us to Dairy Queen because there were only two fast food restaurants on the island, and um, I would get a vanilla cone dipped in chocolate. Now, fast forward to what was going on in my life at that time, 9-11 had just happened, and I had seen all those horrific images on the TV screen, and every fiber in my being wanted to shut down. I, I did not want to feel anything. I did not want to experience life, frankly. It was feeling like whoa, too mm. much. Yeah. And what I was really hungry for was when I was a little girl and I lived on a little island where nothing bad ever happened. And I went, oh, bingo, got it. <laughs> and so then I went in to see my next client and she came rushing in and she was panicking. She goes, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, you're going to have to help me. I'm going to gain that 40 pounds I just lost. And she was going in this panic. And I said, what's going on? And she goes, oh, I can't stop eating vanilla ice cream. I mean, like vanilla ice cream. I like chocolate. I said, well, then why are you eating vanilla? And she said, well, I've had this party and I had a big tub from Costco. It's been in my freezer all the time, but now I can't stop eating it. And I said, well, was there ever a time you liked vanilla ice cream? And she said, oh, Dairy Queen when I was oh. a little girl in New York City. In oh, New York City. So here's what those, one of those places where, honestly, self-disclosure is mm -hmm. really important. Yep. If I had not shared with her, and I, which I did, I said, oh, let me tell you what I just did. <laughs> and, and, and the whole thing popped, right? It came into mm. consciousness. Mm -hmm. And that's the key. It's not like you can't eat vanilla cone dipped in chocolate or whatever. Yes. It's not the food. Now you recognize, oh, there's some feelings that I was trying not to feel. And now I can feel those feelings. Mm -hmm. And and that that evening, I was talking to one of my sisters still on Guam, and I was sharing her the story. She goes, "Oh my gosh, that's why I did it." And I said, "What?" She goes, "I drove across island in rush hour traffic to the only Dairy Queen that was left, so I just had to have it." <laughs> Some collective unconsciousness own, happening yeah, here. <laughs> she had her own health food store with her little frozen yogurts, but no, she had to have that. So you can see how this mm -hmm. works. That. There's meaning, there's deep meaning mm -hmm. yeah. to what we do with food. It's only a problem when that meaning is out of our awareness. Mm -hmm. I love that. I love that. And you talk so much about um, meaning making being such a massive mm -hmm. part of recovery, mm -hmm. similar to what you were talking about with um, with being able to actually find the ways to directly communicate. But that feels like mm -hmm. something that is in the, the category of meaning making allowing yes. yourself to act toward meaning. Right. And, 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 um, because that makes all the difference. So many years ago when I was, uh, I was just going to graduate school. In fact, I just might've been one of my first classes that I walked into and there's this little old man and he was talking in a very thick accent, but I was trying my hardest to, to listen carefully. 
And that little old man turned out to be Victor Frankl, mm-hmm. who um, became very famous, well, was very famous at the time. It was, it was me that didn't know who he was, <laughs> but everybody else knew how famous he was, because uh, he had written a book called Man's Search for Meaning, and um, that came out of his experiences as a psychiatrist in the Nazi prison camps during World War II. And what he discovered was that you can get stripped of everything. You can have everything taken away from you. But there is one thing that nobody can ever take away from you. And that is the meaning you give to your experience. And therein lies all the difference. And so that's in part what set me on this path of, okay, what's the meaning to this? Because if you can get to the meaning, that's where your freedom lies. And I've stayed the course. <laughs> I've, I've seen it time and time again. Mm. You know, when somebody gets it, there's a sense of freedom um, to create a new path. Love that. Absolutely. Um, when you're, I don't know, I don't know if you'll have the answer to this, but I've been thinking about this a lot lately. <laughs> but um, is there something that's really happening in the brain when we're when we're creating yes. meaning in this way? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh. I'm glad you asked, because <laughs> it's my favorite new thing, right? Oh, good, okay. Oh, I've, been, I've been doing storytelling and metaphors for, you know, 35 mm. years. And I would see what I called the lights going off in someone's eyes. I would see it when they would get it. And, and then the room would be filled with energy, and it was very exciting and joyful. Well, now what the neuroscientists have discovered happens is at those moments, those moments of insight, which I love in sight, right? Inner yeah. sight, those yeah. aha moments. There's a part of our brain called the anterior superior temporal gyrus that's in a small fold right above our right ear. And in that moment, well, actually, it's really um, 30 milliseconds before wow. we <laughs> have the insight. Um, that part of our brain shoots out a blast of gamma waves. And gamma waves are the highest electrical frequency in the brain and actually are used to create new neural pathways. Wow. So, so um, for example, here at our program at Ipono uh, in, in Hawaii, I tell, in fact, I was just telling one of the patients today when she got this aha insight, she understood the connection between her negative body image thoughts and um, her relationship with her sister. It's like it popped. And I said, okay. You just got those gamma waves. I saw it. I guess I could see the lights in your eyes. And you, a new neural pathway was created. And guess what? When you leave here, you're taking your brain with you mm-hmm. <laughs> with this, these new connections that are being laid. Mm-hmm. So for me, that's very exciting yeah. um, to, that we now have the science that's demonstrating what's happening. It's mm-hmm. wonderful. It is. Mm-hmm. It is. Um, my background is particularly in writing, and I, I've thought mm-hmm. with therapy in particular, when you're rewriting your mm-hmm. story, literally, you're mm-hmm. editing yeah. um, in a way that's actively asking, you know, the syntax of of mm-hmm. the sentence maybe, but the syntax too of yeah. your thoughts around a particular story yeah. or experience, yeah. those things start rearranging. So I like totally. the science behind it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, so the, the metaphor that I like to use for that is, first of all, you can't change what happened to you. Um, but you can change the story you tell yourself about what happened. Mm-hmm. You see, that's where your freedom lies. That is where you have absolute power and control is with the story and the meaning that you give to it. 
So, so the metaphor I like to use is think of your life as a three-act play. So act one, the script has been written, the character has been cast, the stage has been set. Um, you know, these are your parents. This is your ethnicity. Here's your socioeconomic group. Here's where in the world you're born. Here's your car accident. Here's your childhood illness. Here's your eating disorder. All this stuff gets delivered up, right? All that stuff. We didn't ask for that, but here it is. Mm-hmm. So, but in Act Two, there's a little movement, right? There's still the script has mostly been written, but there's a little room to uh, um, ad, ad lib or Im- improv. Um, some of the characters come and go, but it, it, it's still there's still a script. Act Three, that one's yours to write. Okay, you get to decide. What is your story? Is it going to be a tragedy? It sucked when she was born and it sucked when she died. Um, <laughs> or is it going to be a transformational tale? Like, uh, oh, maybe rags to riches, like Horatio Alger's story. Or, or maybe it's going to be inspirational, like, whoa, look what this person went through and look where, where, where she went with it and how she became. So that is yours to write. That is where you have um, uh, power. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we all get to do it. We all get to um, write the ending of our story. We get to write Act 3. And and that's where I think the joy of recovery lies. You know, you're you're the um, director and the producer and all of that of your own story. Mm -hmm. Getting your agency back and Mm-hmm. bringing your voice. Yeah, it's exciting. It is. Mm-hmm. It is. So this makes me curious about kind of some of the specifics about the Light of the Moon Cafe. And ah, okay. I, I, I don't know what um, a lot of the listeners would know about it, but I'd love for you to just tell us a little bit about the Light of the Moon Cafe and and how it works and kind of what the okay. curriculum looks like. Okay. So how it began is um, I do... Uh, professional trainings, week-long professional trainings with Carolyn Costin and Francie White called Tending the Feminine Psyche. And we've been doing them for 15 years or more. I, I, I'm not, I've lost track. But at one of these um, professional trainings, there was a woman, uh, Elizabeth Peterson, a dietitian uh, from Virginia, and we do our teaching in women's circles. And she said to me, you know, I want to, I want to do this. And I said, well, I'll teach you how uh, uh, to do uh, circles like this. So she went back to Virginia and she started creating uh, eating light the moon support circles. And, but after a while she had like five going because no one ever wanted to leave. And at the time I was traveling around the country, which I still do even now doing soul hunger workshops of women in circle. And, but I, you know, I, there, I couldn't be, you know, in two places at the same time. So she said to me, she said, do you think it's possible to do this online? And I went, Oh my gosh, I have no idea, but let's try so we spent a year uh, putting together the material and fig- trying to figure this out and find a platform. This is five years ago, so there wasn't much of this going on. Um, and then we started uh, running the Light of the Moon Cafe, which um, in its most recent uh, form is uh, a series. There's, there's one series of um, online courses that I call the moon modules, the first one, uh, which is, uh, it'll be starting up in March called the new crescent moon and it's interactive. So it's eight weeks of every single day in your inbox in your email, you'll get something. So it might be, okay, this week we're reading chapter seven and eating by the moon. And then the next day would be an audio of me telling that story and interpreting it. 
And then the next day might be a poem around that concept. And then the next day might be an audio of me telling a metaphor that fits for that concept. And then the next day might be a drawing or a writing exercise or or we have a playlist of songs to listen to. And then there's a forum where everybody communicates. And we have women from all over the world with all kinds of eating difficulties. And I'm on that forum. I respond respond to every single person. And then we also have live calls where people can um, ask any questions from me that they want. And so that's the interactive courses. But then I also have a Cracking the Hunger Code, which is a self-study that anybody can take at any time. So with the interactive courses, you kind of have to, it's a course. So you have to wait until one starts up because then we all move through it together. Uh, with the self-study, anyone can go to lightofthemooncafe.com and, and take that uh, course, which is, that one is a series of about 15 videos of me and then a downloadable workbook where I kind of walk you through how to do the metaphor thing that I was talking about today, how to crack that code. Um, and, and I found that it works. You know, people, um, I get to follow these women in the in the self-study anybody can do it in the interactive course it's only for women but I get to follow them and and be a part of their transformation and it's uh, warms my heart it's like Mm. one of the most fun things I've ever done I love it Mm. so that's uh the light of the moon cafe Mm. that's that's kind of where I live now in this virtual world (laughs) I was gonna say it's such a neat way to be able to expand your reach and just allow for Mm -hmm. Yeah, the your your experiences and your wisdom to kind of reach to so many people. It's wonderful. I love that. Yeah. I'm curious about um some of the the poetry and the stories that you share, kind of again in this in this theme of of metaphor and storytelling. Mm-hmm. What what kinds of things are you sharing with everyone? Well, uh the storytelling, so this is something that many years ago I came across this man, he's won like four Emmys, and he put the, some of the stories from eating. There's some of the stories are from Eating in the Light of the Moon. Some of them are new stories that I discovered after the book got published. But he set them to music, and he um, in his studio, all the walls were lined with these musical instruments from all over the world. So if I was going to tell a story from Vietnam, he took down an onklong and he would play music from the onklong. Or well, uh, uh, an old British store. He had an actual hurdy gurdy, and what he is would play from that, right? Wow. So, so those stories um, are, are put to music, and then I, and then the interpretation. So it was really, really mm. fun creating those stories in in his studio, and um, so so that's what people you know get to listen to, and then respond to with whatever their ideas are, their questions, or you know if it doesn't make any sense. But what happens is people become very proficient in the language of metaphor, and then they start, um, you know, able to tell their story from a metaphoric place, and then they're able to to pop all these connections for themselves. Mm-hmm. So it's really it, it's really fun. I I I love it. It's, Oh, my idea of a good time. Yeah, it sounds like a very good time to me, too. <laughs> I was like, oh, do this. I don't, I don't know if that's okay, Carter, but I was thinking we've had a, a few podcasts lately that have been um, talking about some personality and temperament and some mm-hmm. of the um, – mm-hmm. and I, I wonder 
kind of your experiences of working with different kinds of people? Because I, from my perspective, I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, that like sounds like something that somebody's maybe more creative or more artsy, mm-hmm. you know, and I know mm-hmm. both of you mm-hmm. being more on that <laughs> spectrum would be like, no, mm-hmm. everyone's an artist. Um, mm-hmm. But I, everybody can be creative. And I totally, I know Carter does that a lot in her work at Opal <laughs> is just allowing mm-hmm. for all people, mm-hmm. different types of people to do this kind mm-hmm. of work. But mm-hmm. I guess I would just wonder, yeah, how you, either of you, I guess would respond to that, like, sense of like that the yeah I I don't you could tell me my metaphor I mean I don't but I don't you know if I could really and I yeah oh, I I oh, think yeah, yeah just how how you've interacted That's with different people and different personalities right. and temperaments and how it how that does parallel different kinds of personalities or not like how would you right. say right well I think I think in my experience most people who have struggled with any kind of disordered eating um are very emotionally sensitive and highly mm-hmm. intuitive but don't want to be <laughs> because they haven't been taught the skills for how, how to be, because an emotionally sensitive person, things, you know, penetrate your very bones, but we don't live in a culture that tells you how to navigate with that. So they often don't have the skill sets. And once they, they learn it. So I believe that that's a, a temperament. That's what I meant by saying mm-hmm. I should have had an eating disorder because that is my temperament. Um, mm-hmm. But also some people, they're, find metaphors are real easy and other people go, oh, I don't know if I get this. And so when we created uh, the Light of the Moon Cafe, it was really great because Elizabeth, who has more of a scientific background, she was going to I don't know that everyone's going to get this metaphor. Can we have a cheat sheet? Mm. So we included cheat sheets for downloading. Okay, in this story, this can mean this, or this mm. can mean this. And this is how, you know, it's to kind of help spell out those connections. But by and large, what I found is that most individuals who struggle with disordered eating, the function uh, of the disordered eating has been to help them navigate in a world that, you know, says, oh, you're overreacting, you're too sensitive, or what are get ducks back or get over it. And they don't know how, you know, mm-hmm. how, how, do, how, do, how do I get over it? This has just penetrated my bones. How do I get over it? And so um, those are typically the skills that a person needs to learn, because I think Frankly, there's nothing wrong with being thin-skinned and emotionally sensitive and highly intuitive, uh, that our world would be in a lot better shape if more of our world leaders had those qualities because there's a level of compassion and sensitivity that comes with it. But I I do think there is a problem if you don't learn how to work with that, Um, and it's not taught. Mm -hmm. That makes me think of... um the way that you've explained the masculine and the feminine sides of ourselves, mm-hmm. Anita. Um, can mm-hmm. you, can you explain that a little bit? Yeah. It, Cause it's a little, the language is a little tricky. Right. So I work with the concepts of the masculine and feminine principles as they exist in everybody, regardless of your gender, uh, whether you, you, you're in the body of a male or female or trans or whatever, however you identify The idea is these are principles that come out of the Jungian tradition. And the reason why they use the language of masculine and feminine, in other cultures it might be yin and yang, but in the Jungian tradition they do so because they work a lot with dreams. And in dreams, the feminine principle shows up as a female figure and the masculine principle shows up as a male figure. So I just want to clarify, I'm talking about qualities that exist in all of us. And, and the, 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 what are the so-called feminine qualities, that's the emotional, instinctual, intuitive, relational part of ourselves. 
And, and what's called the masculine, that's the more logical, linear, goal, achievement-oriented part of ourselves. It's more outwardly focused. Um, and, and the reason why I find that important to work with with eating difficulties is that we live in a lopsided culture, a culture that overvalues those um, outwardly focused, goal-achievement-oriented qualities, like you know how much money you have in the bank and how many letters you have after your name and all of that, and undervalues... Um, the emotional qualities, the, the, the instinctual qualities, right? You know, when to eat, when to stop eating, when to move your body, when to rest, when to go to the bathroom. It's like, no, 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 you got to keep going, 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 going. And, and, and don't even recognize intuition. It's almost like a joke. And so we internalize that imbalance. And what I find is someone who's struggling with eating or negative body image, um, it's, it's a lot due to that imbalance. They, they undervalue their emotions mm-hmm. or their instincts or their intuitions. And, and that needs to be brought back into balance. Not that either side is better than the other, neither side is right or wrong, but it's a question of balance. Right. Mm-hmm. So maybe the person that is struggling to understand metaphor in some way, it could be a really helpful, helpful exercise to try mm-hmm. to get their brain going into that more instinctual place mm-hmm. in some capacity. Right. Yeah. Right. So that their mind is not overriding their bodies, uh, yeah. you know, because um, your mind can play all kinds of tricks on you. Your body doesn't lie if you learn how to listen to it directly. But what happens is a lot of times we got the mind running in and interpreting things, you know, uh, and, and it's misleading. Yeah. I know. Well, I love. Go ahead. Oh, <laughs> I was actually just going to thank you, Anita. Um, I'm aware of of the time and just feel really grateful for this conversation. It's been really wonderful to speak with you. Yeah. Thanks for being with us. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Lovely. Thanks again to Dr. Anita Johnston for bringing her expertise and soulfulness to the appetite. So you can further explore Anita's work, she has offered our listeners a free PDF guide to food and metaphors at lightofthemooncafe.com slash opal. It's a very special link just for the podcast, so make sure you check that out. This, along with her website and other resources of hers, can be found in the description box for this episode. Thank you to Jack Straw Cultural Center for sound engineering. Thanks to Aaron Davidson for our music and to Sarah Taylor for editing and production assistance. Please subscribe to The Appetite. If you enjoyed the podcast, we'd really appreciate it if you took a minute to leave us a review through the podcast app that you use. This is a way in which the podcast can become more easily accessible to others who are searching for non-diet perspectives around food, body image, sport, or mental health. We also just love hearing from you. So if you'd prefer, you can email us at theappetite at opalfoodandbody.com. In order to connect, you can learn more about Opal Food and Body Wisdom in particular by following us on Facebook, Twitter, or going to our website at www.opalfoodandbody.com. Thanks again for listening. We'll talk to you next time.